All right, turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark 1. Would you stand with me and we'll read the word and pray. Starting in verse 12. Immediately the Spirit impelled him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... such a brief description of something that was eternally important. And Lord, all the implications of what this would mean, I pray that you would bring clarity today. I pray it wouldn't just be an academic lesson, but Lord, you would even speak to us on areas where we're tempted and where that victory looks like in Christ. We need a humbled heart at this time, so would your spirit please humble us. Would you please work some faithfulness into opening our ears, opening our eyes. Lord, allowing us as believers in Jesus to see that victory is possible. Thank you that the battle was yours to win. And we give you this time. Would you please speak to us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It may be a bit of speculation. But sometimes I like to imagine how the discussion came about when Jesus told his disciples about this event. The reason being is because he has not called any of his disciples at this point. The only way for the Gospels to have ever recorded this would have been for Jesus to take his disciples aside at some point and say, let me tell you something. Maybe it was after the time when he taught them to pray. He said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And what? And lead us not into temptation. Again, it's speculation. Maybe that's not how the conversation happened, but... I wonder if they ever said, have you ever been tempted? Knowing his person, knowing his being, and maybe he said, there was a time that you guys need to know about. However it came about, we know that what is recorded here in Mark in only two verses, it's elaborated on in other Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke, is that this was an event that was critically important to Jesus' ministry. If you remember from last week, um, as Mark is recording in very brief, sort of succinct manners of the movement of the ministry of Jesus, he's doing it for one purpose. He's trying to show, in verse 1, the beginning of Christ and of his kingdom, the Son of God who's coming to inaugurate a new kingdom. In a sense, his baptism was his coronation. 
It was his public declaration that the Son of God has arrived onto this world. Heaven bore witness to that. The messenger that preceded him bore witness to that. Now, the very first act as sort of the coronated king is to step into a season where, in verse 12, Mark says he's going out into the wilderness, and in that he's going to do a little business with the other king. I want you to turn real quick to Hebrews 4, chapter 4, verse 15. And I want you to keep this in the back of your mind as we're going to start discussing the implications of this. This should illuminate a bit of purpose for God's testing in Jesus. In Hebrews 4, well actually we'll just start reading in verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has, been, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, temptation, especially Jesus' temptation and your temptation, it's really only going to make sense in light of the sequence that had occurred in his life, following his baptism. If you're not baptized into Christ, temptation really makes no sense because you're not in his kingdom. So it actually kind of makes perfect sense that the very first act right out of the gate that God would do on behalf of humanity in the baptism of his son is what all the gospels record there immediately. Immediately he sent Christ into the wilderness. Now, I don't know if some of you came to Christ in different scenarios, but typically when we come to Christ, before then we didn't really understand warfare, at least the spiritual dynamics of warfare. We might have understood the concept of sin, but in a lot of ways, the demonic realm, the temptation, and all the things that go into the spiritual uh, dynamic of it all, we were clueless. It's funny how after you become a Christian, all of a sudden you start to discern some of those things and you start to learn those things a lot more. And I find it interesting that just like Christ was publicly baptized in verse 11, And now in verses 12 and 13, we get a record here of his temptation and of the battle that is ensuing. Know that he's going to face a very real enemy. And in this, it's not something that we should really be shocked by in the sense that it happens in the exact same manner to the body of Christ, just like it does to the head. Your baptism is, in essence, a public declaration of an allegiance to a different king. And in that allegiance, you are publicly declaring war against the former kingdom. You are rejecting Satan and his kingdom. You are rejecting the lies of the enemy. And trust me, the enemy does not like to forfeit his territory. So, of course, he's going to come and try to attack the very essence of this new proclamation of Oh, you're the baptized son of God, huh? 
but it's important to see as we're going to look that this isn't by the initiative of the enemy. This is by the initiative of the Spirit. The very Spirit of Almighty God sending, in a sense, His Son right into the battle. Don't be shocked if it happens to you (laughs) as His children. I love that because it does greatly encourage us when we think about, again, the bigger picture. As Mark has made a very pointed effort to kind of keep things very short, I tend to make them longer, which is why we're going short. But if you think about the bigger picture and you think about how all of the miracles, all of the teachings, everything that is pushing towards all of the Gospels in the direction of the cross, of the resurrection, of the proof that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil, what we're seeing is that, in essence, there is a spiritual dynamic and a supernatural event behind all of these things. That's why from the gate we're seeing the conflict of Satan and the Christ. That it is setting the precedent for the rest of his ministry. That in, what, in, in one sense, he is not just coming to serve men, he is coming to despoil the works of the evil one. You've got to understand that if you understand the gospel and you understand the purpose of Christ. He is drawing the battleground into the place where Satan has his strongholds. I think we get that. I think we understand that a lot of the battle is not philosophical, it's not ideological, it's not even physical. It is a spiritual battle. That's why Jesus is engaging right from the get-go. John has already, in verses 9 to 11, proclaimed him to be the Christ. In fact, in John chapter 1, he proclaims him to be who? The Lamb of God that was sent into the world. Now, God the Father has made a public declaration in verse 11 saying, You are my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so get the picture in your mind. There is a bit of, um, I guess, poetic drama to it all. That in one sense, this conflict has been thousands of years in the making. It goes all the way back into a garden where the Satan comes along and tempts the very first Adam. In order to cover that man's sins, God had to shed some blood. So now in sending the second Adam into this fight, in essence, he's sending a lamb to go do battle with a devil. But it's kind of an unequal match, isn't it? Because this lamb is unlike any other lamb. In fact, this lamb, if he is to be the sacrifice for sins, he has to be examined. He has to be examined very thoroughly. If he's going to be exalted as a king, then we need to see, does he have some perfection to offer? Is there any blemish in this lamb? And I think that's why, absent any human around for this event, before it even takes place when the disciples are called, this battle is shaping up between God's Messiah and this Satan to show that there is an unblemished, spotless Adam 
that can come and offer himself as the sacrifice for sins. This lamb is going to crush the serpent's head. And it's kind of funny when you think about all the way back to the garden. I mean, here the devil destroyed the very divine image of man through the temptation of self-indulgence. Christ is going to come and restore the, the, the divine image of man through self-denial by saying, no, I don't need to act in a spirit of independence. I can fully trust in what my Father has done. The ages of the Bible have recorded the temptations of man time and again from Cain's envy to Noah's carnality to Abraham's compromise, Isaac's partiality, Jacob's deception, Moses' anger, Elijah's fear. And think about the lust of Samson and David and Solomon and many others. And when temptation came to each one of them, failure after failure after failure, sin overcame, death ensued, there was no winner except for death himself. Well, now... What Adam forfeited, Christ is going to come, and he's actually going to set the battlefield here in the Judean wilderness. He's going to show that as the second Adam, like Paul describes him in Corinthians, he's going to offer what the first Adam could not. Adam lusted for knowledge. Jesus is going to hunger for some obedience here. And I love that picture. Now look at verse 12 because we certainly don't want to miss the importance of what Mark and really some of the other Gospels are saying. It says, the Spirit impelled him into the wilderness. The Spirit impelled him into the wilderness. Now, this certainly wasn't the Spirit impelling him to go on a wilderness retreat, you know, into Aspen or somewhere. I mean, he's like, the Spirit... And I use that word impel, it could be compelled, it could be constrained. If you want to see sort of the weight of the word, turn to verse 34 of chapter 1. Because it's the exact same word in the Greek, ekbalo. In verse 34, it's translated, and he healed many with, who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. Kind of a violence to it, isn't it? Same word in verse 39, exact same parsing of it. Where it said, and he cast out <laughs> the demons. That's the word. The Spirit is casting him out into the wilderness. Thrusting him into a, a season of isolation, darkness. He is going to face the strongest influence of evil the universe has ever seen. Now think about how that might relate to us and how it probably related to Christ. Because you don't want to overlook, again, the connection between 11 and 12. What is taking place in Christ's temptation and in a sense what takes place every time we face the same is that God is setting the stage for his love to be proven. In verse 11, there's a clear declaration that Christ 
is declared to be the only Son of God, and what does the Father and the voice from heaven say? The Son of my love, in whom I am well pleased. You know the enemy hates to hear that. And so every temptation is going to try to challenge that notion. But the Spirit of God is also willing to allow that challenge to take place. Because the Spirit of God has much to prove to those who possess the Spirit of God just how much love and pleasure he is willing to afford them in providing them the victory over the sin that destroys them. I hope that makes sense to you. Because you're not going to be able to wage a battle against demonic forces and against temptation and against your own sin, which is played upon by the carnal nature you possess, unless you understand clearly the love and the acceptance of what God has declared towards you. You fight on the wrong battlefield. You start asking the questions, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if I'm accepted. You will find those temptations heightened and failure is a guarantee. That's why you read here, he is declared to be the loved son of God, the well-pleased of God, and now the spirit is willing to challenge the devil to see, can you conquer this love? Can you conquer my pleasure towards him? You see, God's love doesn't mean he's going to prevent us from temptation. It doesn't mean he's going to circumvent those issues. He will guard us in temptation. He will preserve us in the midst of temptation. But he's not going to somehow bypass it all. He's not going to avoid the testing. In fact, he's going to get us through the testing. That's why if he's willing to prove his own eternal son's loyalty and love to him, he's also willing to do the same in our life. It's not something we should be shocked by. It's something we should expect as the Christian. But we also expect his victory in the same. I love what one old preacher said. He said, God had one son without sin, but no son without temptation. And that is true. Now, don't think, though, that in this account or in any of the gospel accounts that this is the first time Jesus was tempted by evil. It's not. (laughs) He's been tempted for 30 years up until this point. He's faced the attacks of the devil just like anyone else. Why do the gospels record this singular event? Why do they uh, showcase this temptation? I think, again, it goes back to the fact that in verse 11, this is his public coronation. Notice in verse 14 immediately what happens after the temptation. What does he do? He comes preaching about what? The kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. Why this event takes place is because as the anointed and the announced king who is coming to build a new kingdom and make a new humanity, what you're seeing is the battle that is engaging for the kingdom. That's why, in essence, he has to establish his authority and his right to rule men by proving his victory, by being able to despoil the other kingdom. And in that, he also has to prove his relatability. As a king, can he relate to us? Does he understand what we go through? 
Or is he someone who, you know, has a completely different, you know, relatability? Well, that's why I think when the Spirit impels him into the wilderness, he's doing it on behalf of men. And in order to dethrone this old king who's been ruling by sort of a usurped authority, Christ is going to come and prove his love and prove his authority by showing that he has the victory to overcome the thing that separates God and man. The temptation, the sin, and the evil. Now, notice where also the description is. Not only does the Spirit impel him, but also it says it leads him out into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness spoken of is probably, most scholars, which I will take their word for it, say it's somewhere east of Jerusalem as you head down towards you know, Jericho and some parts of the Dead Sea. If you've ever been to that part of Israel, it's actually a very barren uh, sort of a wasteland. I mean, there's not a lot down there, just some, you know, <clears throat> shepherds and a few, you know, remote houses that sit on some of those hillsides. It's, it's very dry. And I began thinking how the wilderness, in some sense, is, I guess, also a very appropriate depiction a lot of times of how sometimes our lives feel, especially in times of temptation. You think about the place where God usually allows the testing to occur, doesn't it occur sometimes in times of isolation where we're alone, where we feel that weight of wilderness experience or wilderness season coming into our lives? I mean, I I tend, at least in my experience, to find that's when things are heightened. In fact, I tend to find the enemy's tactics are really heightened when I'm alone. Fears, anxieties, vulnerabilities, those things tend to become a lot more real and in some sense a lot more exaggerated. Like they become really big when I'm isolated. (laughs) But that's not actually a bad thing. Because like Christ being cast into this wilderness by himself, I think God allows this especially these seasons of isolation, because listen, when you're alone, that's usually when you're going to have the best picture of your own heart. And you're going to see, in some sense, what resides within that person's character. Character is only going to be proven as true when it's in its isolation. You're not going to see someone's true character when they're in the company of people. You'll see a glimpse of it. What you'll see truly of that person is when they're alone, how they act before God, what their thoughts are, what their actions are, what their desires are. Because that's when you're going to start to see the true person. And I love this because, in a sense, God also, I think, encourages us in what we see here in Jesus because if he can go out into the wilderness in a season of isolation... If you feel those seasons in your heart, whether it's today, whether it's coming in the future, we don't have to be discouraged, especially if we know that temptation is a big part of that. Because Jesus proves that he understands what the isolation feels like. He experienced it, and he's able to provide the victory to overcome in it. Now, why was he cast out into the wilderness? I guess the question would be the same as in verse 11. Why was he baptized? He is doing it to represent humanity. He is stepping up, and as the head of a new humanity, he's going to rule the new kingdom, 
And what victory he gets here in these few verses is the same victory he's going to afford to his people that would be his loyal subjects. That's why he's doing this. And in some sense, we can say, well, then why do we get sent out into seasons of wilderness? It's to do the same. That God is proving his love, proving Jesus' victory, just like he's proving it in Christ's life on our behalf. So notice what verse 13 says. Again, just one verse, and he says, He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. It was an extended period of time, forty days. I don't know why. Perhaps, you know, it could have been, again, an allusion to how in times where you see Moses on the mountain for 40 days, Elijah doing his 40-day thing. Maybe it has a, a picture to correspond to the wilderness wanderings of the 40 years of the children of Israel, where they were tempted and tested. And just like Israel was tested for 40 years, Israel's Messiah will be tested for 40 days and proven as victorious. I don't know what we do know, and it's not mentioned here, but in the other Gospels it says he hasn't eaten anything. He's fasting. Anyone in here done a 40-day fast? <laughs> How about a 40-hour fast? You know, The longest I've ever done was like a six-day fast. And I don't do that to brag. I was, I was in a really difficult season at that point. I can tell you after three days, the pains go away, but the craving in your mind is there constantly. You're not even hungry. You're just thinking, I need to chew something. <laughs> just remember what chewing feels like. It's funny, too, I think a lot of times some of our greatest temptations come when we're hungry and weary. The enemy knows the physical frame of a human and how weakness can be um, taken advantage of. The only thing is he can't really take advantage of this man because he's got nothing to appeal to. But we do know for those 40 days he's there. Something interesting that Mark mentions, which none of the others do, he says he was with the wild beasts. How many of you guys like noises at night out in the wilderness? <laughs> you know, you're just like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a bear and an owl and a coyote. And I mean, I don't really know what to make of this. Um, I've got one thing I say that it would not mean and possibly another that I think it would mean. The one that I think it would mean would be courtesy of a good commentary I read. I don't think that this means that the wild beasts were out there to try to harm him or scare him or intimidate him. It's not much of a gospel if you read, and the Messiah was there, and a bear ate him. <laughs> and we wait for the next. That's not what these wild beasts were doing. And frankly, I don't think Jesus would be scared of the wild beasts. Now, in this time, there were, um, you know, lions and bears and tigers and all these things. Not tigers, but there were um, 
you know, in some of this area, those types of, of animals roaming around. What I do think that this was, and again, courtesy of a commentary I read, which I thought had some good insight, I think this might have something to do with what Paul says in Romans uh, 8. Or is it 9? I didn't look at it. I just remember it. There's something about the creation. When man sinned, it disrupted the entire creative order. Sin entered into the world, death through sin. Even the creation, Paul says, was subjected to futility, not of itself, but by man's sin. Meaning that the creation, in some way we cannot really fathom right now, it, Paul says it's waiting for the day that the revealing of God's sons are revealed. And in that day, when the children of God in resurrected glory are revealed, it says the creation longs and yearns and awaits that day. In a sense, probably to be made right with the order that God created Adam to rule over all creation. That's why you get glimpses of Isaiah that says, and the lion and the lamb are going to lie down together. The ox and uh, the lion, you know, will, will be sort of harmonious. Adam brought a sin that brought death and chaos. It brought wild beasts to the creative order. Isn't it, again, kind of a poetic picture that here the second Adam comes and in an area surrounded by wild beasts, if, I don't know, but if they saw him, they weren't going to attack him. They were going to worship him. (laughs) They were going to see him as the second Adam who came to restore things. And again, I think it's just a counter contrast to what Eden was in its perfection and how Adam left it in desolation. And now you see a lamb coming and strolling through this wilderness where beasts abound. And if they did happen to see their creator, I guarantee they would have bowed. Wasn't to attack. Maybe a little speculation to that. Um, But again, notice what else the angels were ministering to him. Again, I find that interesting. I don't don't know exactly why. Uh, We know, and I believe it's Luke's gospel, it says at the end of the time the the angels came to minister. And perhaps, again, this is just in reference to the, the purpose why God created the angels. In fact, Christ himself created these angels that are now serving his human frame. In Hebrews 1.14, it says that he is doing that for all the people who are to inherit salvation. And again, maybe this is just a picture to show that after doing battle with the enemy, after experiencing those seasons where it seems endless, you know, in terms of temptation, God provides his strengthening ministers. Um, I don't know. But I want to focus in on what it says there in verse 13, where it says, And he was there being tempted by Satan. Tempted by Satan. Jesus wasn't shadow boxing a figment, I can tell you that. He wasn't taking a concept of evil or an idea of wickedness out there with him. This is a real entity. He's a real being. That's who he's going to face. 
Now, on the surface, that might make sense, but we really do have to qualify that in the day and age we live in because our culture is very quick to discount the notion of physical evil forces, or maybe I should say spiritual evil forces, the reality of them. You know, it seems like everyone wants to pin the extension of evil or the effects of evil as something that can be explained naturally. Well, we just got to solve man's problems. You know, if we have more education, solve poverty, it's societal breakdown, maybe there's wealth inequality, or maybe it's just factions of religion that are causing some of the consequences of what we see or, by default, effects of sin. No, behind it all, there is a real devil. There is a real sin. You know, and a lot of people think that if we as evangelicals hold to that idea that we're just going to be a bunch of primitive, uh, you know, buying into this extension of what human fear is. It's not real. It's just something we make up, you know, as if science is the great solver of all of these problems. And, you know, all you have to do is listen to your basket weaving professor in university. He'll tell you that it's, there's no devil. It's just society. Well, that's exactly what El Diablo himself wants. He wants you to think that he does not exist. That he is just, you know, an extension of ancient primitive religion. Well, that's not who Jesus is fighting there in verse 13. He is fighting the real devil. Now, Because Mark doesn't really expand on this, we do want to maybe probe a few questions to kind of think through some of these things. Because, on one sense, if we know who the person of Christ is, fully God and fully man, this should raise a bit of a theological question for you. Especially if you look at other passages of Scripture. If you think about James 1.13 for a minute, if you want to turn there, what does James say about God? And what does he say about, you know, the relationship between God and Satan or God and evil? In James 1.13, he says, <clears throat> Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So he is neither the source nor is he the one that's able to be tempted. So how could Jesus, being fully God, be tempted? You know, you can't give just a short answer to that because honestly the Bible doesn't really expand into that arena. I think on one hand it is an enigma. We're not going to completely understand that. But I think in some regards that problem is maybe more of a metaphysical nature to us than it is a reality. Because we don't understand the humanity and the deity and the fullness of both of those in operation in one person, it can leave us with limited capacity. Do not let that negate the reality of the temptation he is facing. The best answer I could give is Christ, according to Philippians 1, laid aside any right He never laid aside his deity. He laid aside his rights to exercise the authority of it independently. He then submitted himself to the Father and to the Father's will and the Father's authority. So when you see Christ in the Gospels, you see a man 
who is God but fully man operating in such a way that he is, in a sense, submitting the human body, his humanity, to the will of God Almighty. Absolutely. That's why he's going out into the wilderness not to fight this devil in his deity. He's fighting him in full human form. He's doing what the first Adam failed to do. Come, sit with us. (laughs) But let me also say this. Because you don't want to just leave Christ fully human like any other man. He's not like any other man. Although he was fully human, he wasn't just innocent like Adam. He was holy like God. Unlike Adam where there's a tendency for the enemy to be able to come in and to find something to appeal to in his temptation, being that he's not divine, he's a created being, the devil can't find anything to appeal to within the nature of Christ because he's not a created being. He is eternal. So there is no sin nature in him to appeal to. The devil can let the temptations fall where they may and bring them in their strongest measure. But in Christ's humanity, he is simply showing his holiness. So we don't want to think that somehow we, you know, mitigate the importance of this temptation. It was very important for him to be tempted. However, even the full attack from hell isn't going to have anything to appeal to in Jesus Christ. And in that, God can allow the second Adam to come along in his humanity and win that victory. If I were to say, what is temptation? What is the essence of temptation? I've said it previously. I would say it's simply to act independently of God's revealed will. That, that to, to be tempted to sin is to be tempted to act in a spirit of independence. Christ never acted independently of God's will. That's why we read in Hebrews 14, it says, He is one who has been tempted in all things, not most things, but any measure of temptation that the human was to experience, Christ, the Son of Man, was to experience as well. All temptation, all things. C.S. Lewis has some good insight into this because I think the relatability factor here is difficult for us to concept. I mean, we can read like a verse 13 and say, oh, well, he was tempted for 40 days. You know, he didn't eat. Well, he's God. I mean, he could be tempted for 4,000 days and it would be fine. No. Don't think that somehow his temptation was less than yours. It was actually more. And here's why. Because of who he was. In fact, C.S. Lewis says, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. I think that's good insight. Because practically... I can relate to that. If you've been tempted to sin, 
and you've struggled with that for maybe a few hours or a few days, you know the the lingering sort of difficulty it is to engage that battle. And then the moment you sin, boom, the temptation's gone. And then the regret, the remorse, prayerfully the repentance, and then it tends to come back again. But you have had an alleviation from that temptation for a brief moment because you failed. Try to carry that battle for a year, two years, 30 years. Christ is experiencing a temptation that is unwavering in his frame. We have no concept what temptation looks like compared to what he had to go through. And he proved himself holy in it. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, I think the reason we see what's recorded in Matthew and in Luke the way it is, is that the devil is tempting Christ in every way, but three in particular are highlighted. And this is probably the three that Jesus made mention of to his disciples. And he said, if you want to sum up temptation, here's three of the ways he tried to tempt me. I'm not going to go into a lot of the depth of it. I just want to make mention of them because I think it's going to show us in some ways how we're to fight our battle. It says in verse 2, And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and began to minister to him. I want you to notice... <clears throat> the attacks that Satan brings, in particularly the insidious nature of it, because if you notice in two of those instances, he says, if you're the son of God, now don't mistake saying that somehow he's questioning this. He's not questioning it. Um, this is a first-class conditional, which means it's stating an affirmative fact. It's not Satan coming and saying, if you're the Son of God. He's saying, since you're the Son of God. I don't debate that, Jesus. I know you're the Son of God. But because you are, why don't you do this? You see, that's more insidious than even questioning it. Because what he's saying and what he's attempting to do is say... 
Listen, Jesus, we both know here who you are. But because you are this, then prove it. The first temptation is an appeal to his physical frame, his bodily appetite, which he is hungry. In fact, Matthew makes it very clear. He became hungry. Why? Because he was man. After 40 days, and I've heard, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, I've heard at the end of 40 days, the body can usually endure a fast. At that point, you're about ready to die because now the body is going to start shutting down. That's interesting if that's the case. To where now at his weakest human possible point, the devil comes and appeals to something of fleshly nature. Bread isn't bad. But again, that kind of leads me down a rabbit trail. I think how many times does the devil, is he so easily able to appeal to the physical appetites of man? (laughs) And he does it in a sense that attacks the identity of, of who you are, to try to somehow get you to act in a spirit independence of authority over your life. Well, you, can, you can sleep with this person, don't worry. You can look at this, you can click on that, you can, you know, tell this, speak this. You see, what he is doing is, in this temptation, we're seeing the devil's tactic. I think that's why it's recorded the same in the Gospels. It goes to this issue. Satan will attack the identity of the Messiah and of his people. That's why he says, since you're the son of God, let's see what your identity can do. Prove it. And that's exactly what is happening here. By attacking the core of our identity, the devil knows he can appeal to your deepest insecurities. A lot of times, your deepest insecurities are for love and acceptance. You want to be loved. You want to be accepted. And and you know that, in essence, God is the only one who can provide that. And the temptation will come and try to attack the identity of you as a child of God. That's what he's doing to Christ. Well, if you're the beloved of God... I mean, since you are, you know, the one who heaven just declared to be the well-pleasing one... You're hungry, Jesus. Surely it's not a sin to go ahead and make a little bread. Gluten-free if you want. I don't care. Just anything that's going to satisfy that hunger. You're hungry, aren't you? You know what Jesus does? He will not act independently of God's command. It doesn't matter if bread is a neutral object any more than a lot of times the things that become neutral into sin are also many times the things that we get tempted with. In essence, Jesus is saying, I don't need to do this because there's something more sustaining than even a few carbohydrates. Which is why he says it's written. If God the Father wants to lead me out here and provide my necessary food, I'll let him turn them into bread. I don't need to. That's pretty powerful. You see, 
Jesus is showing that by appealing to a higher authority, you can have strength over your fleshly desires. But you've got to appeal to a higher authority, especially at the moment when your flesh is yearning <laughs> for that thing. That's why he says it is written. There's a higher authority that governs my life, not the whispers of the devil. The second temptation is just as insidious. Notice he says the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. So here they are up on the very top of the temple structure. You know, some debate, was it a spiritual vision? Did they really go there? I don't care. (laughs) It doesn't matter. The matter is what's happening in this suggestion And it's actually in response to Jesus' victory over the first. The devil says, oh, you did your devotionals today. It's written, huh? Okay, I can wage some of that too. Here, let's go up into the religious arena. We'll stand on the temple. And since you are the son of God, I don't debate that. Go ahead and throw yourself down. I mean, this is a people that are yearning for some deliverance for their situation. They want a Messiah. They want a Savior. I guarantee if you throw yourself down, it's written. I mean, if we want to play Bible war, okay. For it's written, and he quotes Psalm 91. He says he'll give his angels charge concerning you. Wouldn't that be a way to come and announce yourself? Yeah, the baptism was great, but why don't you cast yourself down? And if they see a Messiah that just lands on angels' hands, boy, they're going to fall down and follow you. You see what he's appealing to? Not only the lust of the flesh, but the lust of pride. The pride of life. As if somehow that would be a greater way for the Messiah to announce his arrival. And he's willing to, you know, again, usurp the authority of God's word by quoting it. I can't tell you how many of the devil's temptations have come in that fashion. Heretics abound by using the exact same tactic of their father, the devil, saying, oh, it's written. This is what it says. It's written. I'll give you guys some homework. Read Psalm 91 and see what's different and try to correlate it with what's going on here. It's actually very impressive. And I'll tell you, the devil is very smart. (laughs) He knows exactly what he's doing when he's quoting Psalm 91. But Jesus is like, oh, yes, I have had my devotions. And by the way, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, (laughs) for it's written. You know what? I think probably infuriates the enemy. I don't know if it's the most, but it definitely infuriates him strong. When he can corrupt the word of God and try to tempt someone down that road, and then you come along and say, yeah, but it's also written. (laughs) That's not the authority that's right. What you're saying is true, but it's not right. It does say that, but it doesn't say it in its fullness. 
because you're leaving something out. I just gave you a hint on your homework. And read what's after it. It's pretty profound. And then the third temptation comes. He's appealed to the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Now he's going to appeal to the lust of the eyes. It says the devil took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I think it's Luke that says in a moment of time. There's something supernatural to all of this when he goes up to a high mountain and in the span of one moment he's seeing kingdoms probably from the beginning of time to the end of time. All of them. All of their authority. All of their glory. And he's showing him for a moment this can be yours Christ. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. In fact he says in another account, uh, they've been given to me, and I give them to whomever I wish. Jesus never disputed that, because he is the prince of the power of this age. Man forfeited that authority to Satan. Satan took that authority, and now he rules the world of man. Which is why Jesus has to come back, and if he's going to establish his kingdom, it has to be through a different means. Here, the devil says, it's yours All you have to do is avoid suffering. (laughs) Just bow down. Offer worship that is convenient right here in this moment. Absent the suffering of the cross, you don't need to go there. That's not going to win you the kingdom you're seeking. Here, look. And he's appealing to the lust of the eyes. It looks good. They're all right there for you. In fact, the glory of them. Don't, don't misunderstand that. It, it wasn't the, the dark side of the kingdom. I mean, this is like them in their shining strength. And what does Jesus do? He says, no. I will not allow glory to be given by avoiding suffering. And he says, for the third nail in the devil's coffin, he says, it is written. You should worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And in those three instances, when Jesus says it is written, we also see really a reminder of how we're going to be victorious. Do you know that Christ went into that wilderness against all the forces of hell, and he really only carried one weapon with him? I mean, he carried one sword. (laughs) That's it. And it was that one weapon that conquered and vanquished the entire kingdom of the enemy in just a few phrases. It's the exact same thing that's going to happen for his people. He's laying precedent for how we do battle in a spiritual war against a real devil. You've got to trust in the word of God, and you've got to rest in the word of God. Now, to sound simple in application, how's that going for you this morning? And I know very, I'm very aware of who I'm speaking to. I'm speaking to a lot of matured Christians, which is why I asked the question, how is the time, the discipline, the authority of God's word working in your life? Because don't think that in your maturity, and in the sense that you've read the Bible for many years, or you're very familiar with passages, that somehow 
past history is going to develop present victory. It's not. You had better be abiding, like the scripture says in his word. It better be a present, active working of the word of God in your life. If you, like me, show up to church and 60 minutes on a Sunday morning we learn and and read the Bible, you think that's going to solve the victory needed for the rest of your week? Or give you strength to overcome temptation on a Wednesday afternoon? It's not. Your strength is in the scriptures. Not just once a week, not just a few times a week. It has to be a constant in your life so that you can be able to say when those temptations come, yes, but it is written because I just read it this morning. I've just been meditating on it recently. It is written, it is written, it is written. You see, complete victory is possible. And what we see is that Jesus' refusal for Satan's attacks is really sort of a clarion call as a reminder that we will not receive a crown unless we're willing to suffer, unless we're willing to fight. And I think this is where a lot of us might get discouraged and we might give up. Because usually under continual fronts of attack, we tend to become weary. We tend to become discouraged. We end up thinking, well, I just don't know if I can really have the victory in this. Well, listen, what Jesus did in defeating the devil wasn't just to secure us positionally. He's doing that on the cross. What he's doing is he's providing practical power in a daily struggle against a real devil. It's a daily struggle. It's a daily battle. And it has to be built on the fact that we, the only devil you will ever fight is a defeated devil. You will have to engage the battle in a way that in essence believes that that victory is possible. I'll read 1 Corinthians 10 for you. I'm sure many of you are going to be familiar with this. But this is going to be a challenge, I think, to a lot of people, whether we're in this season or whether we face this season in the future, that find persistent levels of attack. And that can be on any front. It doesn't just have to be, you know, the big sins. It could be any sin. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, he says, No temptation is overtaking you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And here's where people get discouraged and give up. I've been attacked for these six months. Is this the rest of my life? I see no end in sight. I see no close to this door. It just seems like the onslaught of hell keeps coming and coming and coming. And guess what? When it comes, every single time it comes, God has provided a way of escape. Well, I'm too far gone. I'm already on the website. I've already said those words. I've already thought those thoughts. I've already done those things. In those moments, there is still opportunity for victory. He will not allow you to go beyond that which is able to escape. And this is where we need to find our faith and and really challenge our belief because God has provided a way of escape. 
When people refuse that belief, in essence, you're saying, thank you, Jesus. I appreciate your salvation, but this temptation is too strong. And frankly, it's more beautiful than what you have to offer right now. That's what we say when we yield to temptation. It's something that should require mournful repentance on our part. Because no amount of sin, no amount of disobedience is as beautiful as the one who died for it. Don't give up in your struggle against the temptation. Whatever temptation that looks like, don't yield because you think it's going to give you a reprieve. It's not. It's giving an accusation for the enemy to bring before your mind. And I think this is why we should leave with some encouragement when we think about what Jesus is going through here in the wilderness and what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 4, that he's experiencing this for us so that we can relate with confidence to him in our ability to approach the throne of God. Do you realize that a lot of people are going to struggle in thinking how God could love them in the midst of their failure, in the midst of their sin, in the midst that they have yielded so often, so frequently to temptation? And if you're not careful, that can harden your heart. To where all of a sudden man wants to shake his fist and say, God, you have no idea what this is like. How can you not understand what I'm going through? Do you know what God is doing? He's eliminating the foundation of that excuse. Man will have no right to shake his fist at God and say, you do not understand. He understands. He absolutely understands the difficulty of the situation, of the temptation to give up, to, to forsake hope. And in that, he says, draw near with confidence because he's a relatable high priest. He's a relatable man. He understands. Jesus, in his temptation, showed the devil. He showed the angels. He showed his disciples in days to come. And frankly, he showed all of humanity who was ever to read of this account that even if you're homeless, broke, hungry, exhausted, and alone, which is all the things he was at this point, to obey Jesus, to obey God the Father, and to worship him through loving obedience is still the most satisfying experience you will have. God is always the greater desire and the greater joy than any amount of temptation that the devil can afford. Appreciate Jesus' humility in this time because it should really encourage his people that there is victory for that. Lord, I just ask that you would help us, you know, even in <clears throat> the season where most of us are being tempted to despair and discouragement, fear. Um, it's almost as if we look at the onslaught that 
we feel but maybe we don't necessarily fully understand where it's coming from, why it's coming now. Um, temptation is not fun. I think you that temptation is not a sin. It's only when we yield to it. I just pray for us as a church, even for my own heart, that, Lord, you would strengthen us with a, a supernatural measure of your provision of grace that we would believe so that when those times come, Lord, we can fall back and rest on something that appeals to even a stronger authority than the impulses and urges of our flesh or of our mind. We can simply, like Christ, say, yeah, but it's written. And we yield to the authority of your scripture. It's the only way we're going to get victory, Lord. It's the only way we're going to be encouraged. So, Lord, we thank you and bless your people now as we close in this song and as we partake of communion to remember the broken body that was offered was a body that was wholly yielded to God, unyielding to temptation. And we get to taste of that and the victory that our head has brought to us, Lord. Thank you, and I just ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.